Hello, everyone. So I have to tell you that uh, that last song, I'll add my voice to everyone else. That was the gold for me tonight, that last song. Because when you say something true, right, it's not about hype, it's about truth. And when you speak the truth from your heart, I always say this, I, I, I love to write. I've, I've written a lot in my life. And if you're a budding writer, you don't try to be great as a writer. You try to tell the truth. The same with songwriters. Tell the truth. In fact, that's the way to live. Tell the truth. And that last song was honest, right? I, I hope that I have something for you tonight. I'm going to talk about Israel. But I think it's going to fit into what I think we're sensing is the theme for tonight, which is God's goodness to us, his faithfulness to us. And, you know, your love for, for worship in music is part of the essence of Tehillah. We know that. But um, I'm not so much... Uh, I, let me just do a confession. When I drive in my car, I hardly ever listen to music. My daughters think I'm a real nerd. I listen to podcasts, lectures. You know, those, I listen to words. Okay. I'm a word guy. And I get moved by words. Uh, so my worship moment is when I'm reading a good book. And there's a thought that just captures my heart. And I lean back in my chair. I have a room at home with books and a big, yeah, lazy boy, leather chair. Have you seen it? Yeah, you've seen it, James. And that's where I sit and do my thinking and my praying. And I get caught by a, a word or a phrase. And my heart just soars. So there was an article just recently in Christianity Today that said... Uh, Worship God, and if necessary, use music. A takeoff on Francis's famous statement when he said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And the way it was is that our basic stance as Christians is to honor and to give praise and to let our hearts be moved by the biggest things, the truest things, the greatest things. So we have this worshiping capacity. Music is a wonderful tool for that. But I I just thought I would say tonight, as you're thinking, as you're experiencing life, as you're walking outside in this beautiful time of the year, you are going to find your heart moved in all kinds of ways. Understand that your heart needs to be movable, right? That's the essence of worship. So my hope tonight is that we find ourselves as worshipers as I walk through the central section of, of the book of Romans, chapters 9 to 11, about the church in Israel. Because to me, and I've been reading on this subject, thinking about it for years now. Years. It's one of the most thrilling things that I can think about. My heart gets soaring at times about what God is doing in our world right now and what he promises to do. So I want to offer it to you as a contemplation that can lead you into worship. And there are many uh, who teach the book of Romans who miss this part. Romans 1 to 8 and we've been through that just now, and I'm going to review the, the, the flow of the argument to this point in the, in the letter. But they come to the end of Romans 8, and they don't know what to do with Romans 9 to 11. It seems like a strange piece. And so they skip right ahead to Romans 12. Now, you might not know what I'm talking about, but Romans 8 ends with this me- amazing sense of God for us. 
And then, then they enter, or Paul enters in Romans 9 to 11 about the question of Israel. And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. Romans 12 then says, therefore, let us present our bodies as living sacrifices. And it seems like you could end at the end of Romans 8 and you could go right to Romans 12 and pick up and there'd be no space or gap in the argument. So a lot of people have missed the meaning of Romans 9 to 11. But here's the point. If Paul's most important letter is Romans, and if at the center of his letter to the Romans is the section 9 to 11 on Israel and the church, then it really, really is important for us to wrestle with this. What is this doing at the heart of our New Testament as we wrestle with the question of what is God's plan for Israel? So what I want you to hear tonight is not only what God has in store for Israel, but the kind of God we have who is faithful to his people, absolutely rock solid faithful. So there's no getting around this that the Christian church has Jewish origins. Do you know this? (laughs) Jesus was a Jew. Did you know that? The one you worship, the one you serve, was a Jewish man. And all that entails. You know, that, that, that miracle, that one story was told where he's walking through the crowd and a, and a woman takes hold of the corner of his garments, right? She wants to touch him. That's the corners of the tassels of a, of a Jewish man's prayer shawl. <laughs> he was thoroughly Jewish, Jesus was. And when the good news was first preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 Jewish people came to faith in Christ. The church exploded in the community of Jews in Jerusalem. But then something quite strange happened. You know the story, how the Gentiles began to take over in the church, those non-kosher, pig-eating, you know, people. The Gentiles. How many Gentiles are here right now? Yeah, I'm a Gentile. Boy, there's a lot of Jews in this room, actually. (laughs) And it seemed to be, as you follow the story in the New Testament that the Gentile uh, believing population exploded and it created a real tough issue for Jews and Gentiles because they had a hard time coexisting. First of all, Jewish people had a hard time with the moral laxity of the Gentile world. I mean, they were just, well, Gentiles were just immoral, right? And And Jews couldn't take that. And then there was the cultural piece. They just lived differently. But you know what was happening in the the first generation of Christians is God started to clean up the Gentile Christians. They started to be transformed by the work of the Spirit. They started to come around into a different way of living. We see that happening in the New Testament. But something else happened, and it was a very big issue in the New Testament church. They didn't become cultural Jews. In fact, this was one of the defining issues for the New Testament community. It's one of the uh, big, important ideas that's going on in the book of Acts, in the central section of the book of Acts. It's one of the important ideas that's being worked out in Paul's letters is the question of if a person becomes a follower of Jesus, do they have to also become a cultural Jew? And the, the answer that the New Testament community comes up with, no. And so this creates an interesting group of people to be one body of believers. You had Gentiles who lived in a culturally Gentile fashion, and you had Jews who lived as cultural Jews. And so this created a really interesting dynamic. I mean, you know, church 
potluck suppers. You know, there's pulled pork and matzo ball soup, you know, all together. You know, what are you going to do with that? Uh, so there, there comes this real vexing question. And then it starts to emerge this question. Is God finished with Israel? If God has built a new community that has exploded in the world through the Messiah Jesus, the one who came to his own people. And if God has built this new community of Gentile and Jew together in one fellowship of believers, then the question really, really begs answering right now. It begs asking and it begs answering. Is God finished with Israel? Was Israel simply a sort of pre-run of God's work until it got to the point of the explosion of the gospel taking in the Gentiles. And now that whole story is over. This is the large question of the New Testament. And it's the large question that Paul is asking in the central section of the book of Romans. And it's an important question to ask. And it sets us up to understand God's big big program in the world and also the way God is. The way God is. God's absolute faithfulness to his promises. And I'm going to make the case tonight that God is not done with Israel. And I mean Israel as a nation, as a people, as an ethnicity. So there's something now short of 16 million Jews in the world. It's interesting. Pre-Holocaust, you know, we're going to mention, I'm going to mention something about the Holocaust of the Jews in World War II. There were 16, something like almost 17 million Jews and 6 million were put to death. And now that world population of Jewish people is now just approaching where it was before World War II. The largest concentration of Jews are, of course, in the United States and in Israel. And this is part of the amazing story of what's going on. Paul is teaching us here in the heart of his most important letter and at the center of that letter that God is not finished with Israel. And there remains a mystery of how he will bring Israel home. And we're going to talk about that tonight. So let's trace the argument of the book of Romans to this point. Let's just do a quick survey. You've been at this how long now? How many weeks? Eight weeks maybe? Something like that. So let's trace the, 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 the argument really quick. First of all, that first opening part The announcement of the good news for Jew and Gentile. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, which is the power of salvation for everyone who believes first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, says Paul. Very key moment there. You would have had in the church at Rome, Jews and Gentiles together. And so Paul is addressing this whole crowd. And he's saying the good news is about faith in the faithfulness of God. God is faithful and we are to have Faith in the faithfulness of God. And this is a message for Jew and for Gentile. And then the next section, 11, or 118 to about 320, is simply this. All have failed. Everyone has fallen short. All have messed up. Jew and Gentile. Everybody's blown it. And can't help themselves. Isn't that great news? You can't help yourself? I, I like actually this uh, experiment. Um, try picking up yourself. You know, just sort of wrap yourself. You can't do it. And that's why self-help is not good news. 
God is the one who helps us. Both Jew and Gentile have been unfaithful to the faithful God. No one is innocent here. Not Israel who has the covenant and the law. And not the Gentiles who had the law written in their heart. All have sinned and fall short. That's actually good news. And then 321 through 425. And all are set right by the grace of God that is in Jesus. The good news then tells us that salvation is not something we do for ourselves. As I've just said. We can't pick ourselves up. But in Jesus dying and rising story, God has done something for us. He's fundamentally changed the universe. You know, in that moment when he's hanging on the tree, and it tells us in the gospel story that darkness came into the land for three hours. It's almost as if something metaphysical is taking place, this bridge between the physical order and the spiritual order, and all the darkness and all the sin is being laid upon the body of Jesus. Something fundamental is being changed in the world. All have failed and all are set right right by God's grace through Jesus. And so chapters five through eight then is about now we live by the help of God's invading powerful presence His spirit that comes to dwell within us in the twisting, turning story of our lives. It's not all happy days. There are struggles. And in that section, chapters five through eight, it talks about our personal struggles with sin and our our experience of suffering. But in all of that, in sin and in suffering, the Holy Spirit is bringing about his transformation because God has made a powerful promise about his future. And so this is the good news of the book of Romans as it takes us to the end of chapter eight. But Paul doesn't move on at that point merely to now, how shall we live? What are the ethics of this way of being? He can't get beyond as a Jew, how he feels the need then to talk about Israel. Paul has to talk about his people. And he'll do that for chapters 9 to 11. I'm only going to do the most cursory sort of tour of these chapters. But I encourage you to read them. There's so much depth in these words. But all I'm going to do tonight is highlight the basic argument and tell you about God's plan for Israel. I was reading last week in the Gospels and I came to this. This rather sad moment uh, in the story of the Gospels about Jesus in the last week. You can put it on the screen. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is at the very last hours of Jesus, the last beginning of the last week, as he comes now to the city to die. And he said... All of this has been hidden from you. You haven't recognized God's coming to you. So there's a great tragedy at work. But what we're going to see is the amazing ways of God through the tragedy of our no and our failure and how God brings about his goodness because faithful is he who calls you and he will do it, says 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you and he will do it. Do you think you can memorize that text? Do you think we can say it together? I think we can do it. First Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you. And I will do it. Oh, no, no. 
and he will do it. God does the creating and God does the saving. And God does the finishing. And so that's why the message I feel a lot of times I have to say to Christians is relax. You're trying too hard. And sometimes I think in our, even in our emotional intensities and our worship moments, we're just trying too hard. There's a difference between rejoicing in what God has done for us and trying to make something happen. Don't try to make anything happen. Just receive. Just, just be there. That's why I felt at the end of our worship tonight, the most powerful moment is the honest moment, right? To just say, hey, we're here, Lord. We love you. All right, enough of that. There's been this long inner dialogue in Judaism for a long, long time. Whether or not a Jew can accept Jesus and still be a Jew. Jesus comes to the city in this text and he weeps for it because he said, you haven't recognized on this day what would bring you peace. (laughs) It's hidden from your eyes. You didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. And so there's been this long debate. Can a Jew be a believer in Jesus? And it's a vexing question for Paul because most of Israel has rejected their Messiah. Not Paul. You know the story of Paul. Paul was vehemently opposed to the way of the Christians, wasn't he? He persecuted those who were of the way, it's called in the New Testament. He was vehemently against Jesus until he was intercepted by Christ himself. And so this has been the long story. So I want to review then what Romans 9 to 11 teaches us about the church in Israel and about God's way with Israel. Are you ready for it? Chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, Paul says this. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. And what Paul is doing here, I mean, if you're tracing the, the, the argument of the, of the book of Romans, or if you read other uh, parts of, of, of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you can see him almost giddy with joy over the, the embrace of the Gentiles of, of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. He's absolutely ecstatic about what is going on. And he calls himself a Gentile to the, uh, uh, an apostle to the Gentiles. He's He's overjoyed with excitement about how the gospel has been received. But at the same time, he's tremendously pained that Israel herself is refusing to enter into this grace. So he wants to talk about it. It's the elephant in the room for Paul. At the end of chapter 8 of Romans, he's saying, this is amazing, this grace that we live in. We're more than conquerors through him who loves us. I consider that neither height nor depth nor 
anything in all creation, neither all that list, whatever it is, shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's overjoyed, right? But then he says, but I'm in anguish over Israel. I mean, look at all the rights and privileges they have that are in this list. Theirs is all of these things. Even from them comes the Messiah King. It reminds me of the prodigal son story. You know, you know the prodigal son story. But, you know, the truth is, uh, it's the prodigal sons. The story begins, a man had two sons. So usually when we tell the prodigal son story, we tell about the younger son, how he wanders away from the household because he wants his dad's stuff without his dad. He can't wait for him to die. I can't wait for you to die. Give me your, my stuff. now. It's a terrible, terrible, terrible thing he does, right? And he goes and wastes his life, okay? But we know this story. He returns home. And there's a tremendous feast and a celebration. Okay, number one son goes away, comes home, and there's a celebration. But what about the second son? We don't give enough consideration to this. The second son is the older son, right? The older son is the one who never left. He had always stayed home. And when I read the story of the prodigal son, I wonder if there's not at play here something about the Gentiles and Israel. Because the older son goes outside. He's in a snit. He's mad, (laughs) right? And he says, I've never left you. I've always been here. And his father says, don't you know that all I have is yours? Come in and feast with me. You know, let's celebrate the younger son's return. But he stays outside and he won't come in to enjoy the celebration, the feasting. You know, I'm really intrigued by that story because it it leaves it hanging. It doesn't finish it. The older son is outside and the story finishes with a question. What will happen to the older son? Interesting. Romans 10, 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination or the fulfillment of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end point. Christ is the, is the one that the whole Old Testament scriptures and the laws and the commands, everything that was written leads to, says Paul. So Paul is unequivocal here. He's not saying that the Gentiles come by the way of Jesus, but, but Israel has its own special track to God without Jesus. He's saying, no, all come through the son who is given. And notice these words. Judaism where the Jewish nation is filled with zeal, but, but without knowledge, with a missing piece of information. I, I think this is so important to have, you know, it's, it's a great tragedy to have zeal without knowledge, passion without understanding. But this is true with Israel. You know, I, I love Jewish culture. I've, I've been a reader in things Jewish for 30 years now. You know, when you get my age, you can talk in decades. So that's what happens. 
But some of my favorite authors, Elie Wiesel, I don't know if you know about his great novel, Night, and all the things that Elie Wiesel wrote. Kaim Patak, the novelist, Abraham Heschel, Martin Buber. There's some heavyweight people to learn from. So there's a lot of zeal. But obviously, Israel stumbled over her Messiah. What does that mean? What does that mean that she missed it? I was at Yad Vashem, which is the Jewish Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem some years ago. And that is an amazing place to go if you ever go to. How many have been to Israel? A few of you have been. How many want to go? Okay, well, we're planning a trip, so keep your ears, right? That's the first announcement. There you go. Uh, and I was in Yad Vashem, and they had a place there where you could find out your Jewish ancestry. So I went up to the lady and said, I'm not Jewish. She said, well, maybe you are. And I said, well, my name is Osborne. And she said, well, I've never heard that name. You know, Osborne Berg, maybe, but not Osborne. So we looked, there was no Osbournes. And I said, well, let's try my mother's side. She's from Mennonite stock. And you know, the Mennonites are like one of the lost tribes of Israel, you know, one of that kind of thing. (laughs) And so, so what's her name? You know, well, her, her mother's name was Unruh. So let's trace that. No, there's no Jewish there. I said, but I feel so Jewish because I come here to Israel and it's amazing. I mean, I'm, this is the, you know, Disneyland is great, but there's nothing like the Western wall. There's no place in all the earth where, where my Jewish brothers and brothers and sisters are praying at the wall, waiting for their Messiah to come. This thrills me. This thrills me. There's no other place in the earth like this place where you can tangibly sense something is going on that's beautiful. So they have zeal, but there's a missing piece of knowledge there. Romans 11, verses 11 to 12. I ask, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? Oh, hold on. Something's going on here. (laughs) What is Paul saying? He's saying something opened up when Israel rejected her Messiah, which allowed Tehillah Monday to happen. Which allowed all you to come in. And me too. Something happened when Israel said no to their Messiah. But look at what he says there. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. Do you see what he's saying here? How much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? What is he talking about? I think he's saying something like the older brother is going to come back into the house. Hold that thought. And remember, Paul's big question here throughout this whole section is what about Israel? Is Israel now irrelevant? And there's a lot of younger Christians now who are starting to doubt that and forgetting. And I'm here to tell this crowd that Israel matters and Israel belongs in God's program. 
and I'm happy to talk to you about it because it's one of the most important aspects of present history. You are living in a time when Israel is back in the land and it's the immediate testimony of the coming of the Messiah. And if we miss that, we've missed far too much. And I'm passionate about this. Romans 11, 13 to 15. I am talking to you, Gentiles. Sounds like a Robert De Niro statement. I'm talking to you. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world. Same thought now again. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Amazing statement. There seems to be then what Paul is talking about here is a mystery at work. And a mystery in Bible speak is not something unknowable, but something that is hidden and disclosed within God's ordering of time. So there are mysteries that God himself unlocks and reveals. The mystery, of course, we can think of profoundly as the crucified Messiah. And how that was opened and revealed. And then we look back into scriptures and see how present that was from the very beginning. The crucified Messiah. But they didn't see it at first, right? They didn't understand that. So the mystery here that Paul is talking about is that Israel at some point will accept what they previously rejected. Namely, Jesus their Messiah. And I could take time and we could take time to comb through the scriptures and see how this is actually at present in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament. And it's an amazing and thrilling thing. You know, religious Jews still wait for their Messiah. You can Google it. The Jewish hope in the Messiah. You can, you can see it all there. You can, you, can, you can read about it. I mean, still the same idea. He's the son of David. He's from the lineage of David. He will bring universal peace. He will bring redemption to the nation of Israel. He will usher in a time of peace in the world. And he will bring about the final sign of the end of times, which is the resurrection itself. And here in this text, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's an amazing statement. So Paul says, when Israel accepts her Messiah, this brings about the culmination of the ages and the hope that Christians and Jews together embrace. We believe that he who has come will come again. And all Israel will accept him. Now, Paul is as plain as he can be here at the end of chapter 11. Romans 11, 25 to 27. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. That's the same motivation we have tonight. I want you, Tehila, to be aware of what's going on. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. That is, thinking of of yourselves too well at the expense of Israel. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So when the full number of Gentiles are claimed, says the scripture, says Paul here, then the deliverer will come for Israel and that will usher in the culmination of the ages. Does that move you at all? Does that move you at all? 
Were you just, you know, okay, brother, you were running around a little while ago. Do you want to run around right now? No, don't, don't, no, no, just stay. Yeah, good. Yeah. I mean, so, so when I'm reading, thank you. Someone got excited here about this. Yeah. When I'm reading about Israel in the land in our day, I am, I am moved to the depth of my being of, as to what God is working out in our time before our eyes. Several years, years ago, I was on a plane to Israel. Uh, I, I've gone twice, and it's time to go again. I sat next to a woman from Toronto uh, who was going to visit her son, who had been a professional in Toronto for some years and had decided to move his family to Israel to study Torah because she said he believed the Messiah was coming soon. And it was an absolutely thrilling conversation. Me as a Pentecostal pastor sitting into, next to this uh, older woman who was going to visit her son and his family in Jerusalem who had given up everything to go study the scriptures as he expected and awaited the Messiah. And I told her I agreed with her son. I sincerely believe we are living towards the end of the age. I'm not a date setter. Don't try to get me going there. I'm not a speculator. There's been far too many mistakes made about all this stuff. Uh, In fact, I have some wrinkles in my eschatology if you want to talk about it. But I do believe Jesus is coming again because he said so. And I do hold to the one big sign of the Messiah's return, and that is Israel is back in the land. Now, that's a really large teaching that I haven't even broached, but you can see scripture after scripture that talks about God calling his people back to the land as the final peace for the culmination of the ages. So what are we saying then? It's the most stunning development of the 20th century. At the end of World War II, as Israel and as the Jewish nation are decimated by hatred of an unparalleled kind. I was in, I was in Germany in, in uh, the spring of this past year and, uh, and toured Dachau, one of the concentration camps. I've read a lot about the Holocaust. It's, it's, it's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. It happened in the heart of Christian Europe. And you can say, okay... Where the Nazis weren't very Christian, were they? No, they weren't. But the culture had been steeped in Christian thought for generations. And somehow there'd been this missing piece as to see that Israel were our, <laughs> was our root. This is what Paul teaches in another place. I'm not reading it for you tonight. He said, the root is Israel. We are grafted into the root. We are connected to this story. This is our, these are our people that we love and pray for. Paul says, sure, they're enemies against the gospel in the sense that he's just saying they're against the Messiah, Jesus. But Paul said, I'm in anguish because of that. And so I pray for them. And as he's been teaching us now, there comes this new sense of, but God is up to something big. He's going to turn the story around. The older brother's going to come back into the house. So what are we saying? I'm saying that God will be faithful to Israel and that Israel will in faith turn back to God 
through Jesus. I can make a large scriptural case for that. Four, Romans eleven twenty nine. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God does not take back what he has promised. We are faithless, but he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So I end with two implications tonight. Two last thoughts. First, God's faithful character. Let's say it again. First Thessalonians 5.24. Faithful is he who calls you. Let's do it together. Faithful is he who calls you and he will do it. You know, so we don't need an altar call tonight. We just need to relax. We need to go drink coffee and enjoy a company. Yeah. The reason God calls for our faith in him is because he is faithful. Trust the faithful one. He does not fail in any of the promises that he has made. Perhaps you felt that you've blown it. Perhaps you feel that you struggle. Perhaps you wonder at times, have you, have you blown it with God in such a way? You know, we get into all these kind of thinking, you know, our, you know when they're talking tonight about the cage and, the, and, and, our, and our mind get trapped by the cage. I think this is true. We start to, start to try to read the tea leaves, you know, God, do you like me anymore? And how come, you know, he's proven it in Jesus. Just settle that one and move along, Okay. You might have to wander through a difficult trial, but God is for you. That's settled, okay? You don't have to say, if the third car that comes along is a red car, I'll know you love me. Okay, you don't do that kind of thing anymore. You don't have to look for signs as to whether God loves you. Jesus is God's sign, right? So let God prove himself reliable, even when we are unreliable. And this is, this is the faithful character of God that we're rehearsing through the story of Israel. And the final thing, the final implication is this. It's about salvation in history. We tend to see our salvation as personal and internal and spiritual. We say, I got saved. You know, there was a preacher and he preached and then I prayed and I had personal salvation. And that's certainly true. I believe in that. But salvation is also bigger than what happens to you personally. Salvation is more amazing than personal and internal transformation. Salvation ultimately is global. It involves nations. It involves the whole world. It involves what we can see with our eyes. Salvation is huge. Right now it's working like a mustard seed in hidden places and in secret places. But if you get this about Israel, salvation ultimately has to do with a whole nation and through Israel to the world. Now, I don't know how all that works out. I just believe the scriptures tell us that a genuinely new world where peace reigns is the future. Where the lion and the lamb are friends is an indication of the transformation of the creation itself. It's an amazing vision. So I think God wants us to watch history. And if you need a reading list, I can give it to you. And if you need to start paying attention to what's going on, and you say, well, isn't Israel and the Palestinian situation really complicated? It is absolutely complicated. 
Did you know that there was a lot of politics going on in the time that Jesus came? Did you know that? Did you know he was put to death because of politics? So politics is nothing new. And I'm not saying that everything Israel does is right and true. And I'm not saying the Palestinian-Israel conflict isn't complicated and messy. It is. What I am saying is that God has not given up on Israel. And Israel in the land involves the promise of God to restore his people and to restore his people through Israel. That's what the scriptures say. In certain quarters, that's controversial. But I'm going to go with what the scriptures teach on this one. And I know the politics are complicated. But what I want for us tonight is not to be ignorant of this amazing development in history that Israel is back in the land and we ought not to be contemptful of what God is doing to the people who are our root in faith. So, let's put this on the screen. I don't know if we got it up there. James blew it. And God is faithful to you, James. Here's what I wanted to say on the screen. Israel waits and prays for her Messiah. You get that? Israel waits and prays. If you go to the Western Wall, Israel is waiting and praying for her Messiah. The church waits and prays for Israel. Israel waits and prays for her Messiah. The church waits and prays for Israel. Our future is bound up together. Lord Jesus, come. Blessings. Blessings.